Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I like you, like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Calvin Watkins is a sports writer. He is on the staff of the Dallas Morning News, the paper I grew up reading. He covers the Dallas Cowboys, the team I grew up living and dying by. His job is to take these players and these games and all of the ephemera surrounding them and create narratives out of them, to make stories. He is great at it. Recently, he and I were both on the panel of a literary festival hosted by my alma mater, St. Mark's High School in Dallas. And I was so impressed by just what a kind, funny guy Calvin is that my mind immediately jumped to the idea, of course, of hitting him up for a wheels off interview. It may not seem like an obvious choice because he's a sports writer, right? Like, is that a creative profession? Well, after talking to Calvin, I'm more confident than ever that being a sports writer is as creative as any creative profession. And I'm so glad I got to pick his brain and I'm so grateful for the time and the wisdom that he shared with me for this newest episode of Wheels Off. Welcome, Calvin Watkins. Welcome to Wheels Off, Calvin Watkins. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, this is this is so great. You know, the this yes. this uh, podcast series is about creativity and the creative life, and mm-hmm. um, most of my guests are musicians or novelists or whatever. Um, I have spoken to. I told you when I was hitting you up for this, um, Brian Anderson, the sportscaster, mm-hmm. and um, and was kind of amazed at how creative that job is. And then when you and I recently did a literary festival together, hearing you describe your work, I was like, oh, my God, I got to talk to Calvin about this. (laughs) So, um, okay, so for the edification of our listeners, where are you right now? Uh, I'm in my home in Plano, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's in uh, Collin County. Plano is one of the, the first, I guess, you know, big suburbs of Dallas. And then it became 
Frisco and been prosper. So when you if you wanted to live north of Dallas, the first big suburb was Plano. And then as as you went further and further north, other sur- suburbs developed like the Colony, Frisco, Prosper, a little bit now. Uh, you remember Salina? They had a really good football team back in the day. Mm-hmm. And they're like a small town, but now they're growing as well. So Allen, Texas, uh, they're a, a good suburb, but they only still have one high school, you know? And uh, so, yeah, so I'm in the suburbs. I know Plano's got a, at least a couple of high schools. My brother's up there. Yeah, they have uh, three high schools, uh, Plano, Plano East, and Plano West. That's really original. <laughs> a, bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of middle schools. But Frisco, where my kids live, they have like seven high schools. Wow. Um, so it is, it is amazing how other suburbs say we need four high schools or we need three high schools to kind of get things going. Um. So what – what creative project are you working on right now? And, uh, and how does it light you up or, or does it? Because I know your job, it seems to me like it can be maybe sometimes a grind. I wonder. No, it, it, it can be a grind. Uh, it's usually a grind during the football season. Um, but once the season is over, then you try to find big picture projects. So, for instance, um, the NFL draft is in April. Um, and because of the pandemic, the preparations for the NFL draft is totally different now. So, you know, you can't go see players in person. Um, it's, it's, excuse me, you're limited to how many people you can send to like a, a college to watch a player. Um, there's an event called the Senior Bowl, which is happening this week in Mobile, Alabama, and they and there's no media allowed, but because of the pandemic. So, and the teams are only allowed to send a certain amount of people to watch these college players. So you try to find stories like this, like how does the pandemic change your approach in drafting college players or even, you know, just, just scouting them. Um, like when, when you draft a player, I'll say, Rhett, I'm going to measure you. So you're 6'2", 185. And I might say, mm, that's a little too heavy. For, for a wide receiver, I need you a little bit lighter, you know. And then, you know, and usually when a, in sports, when you see a guy's height and weight, it's a little, they play with it because you play basketball in sneakers, so that sneaker gives you two inches. You play football in cleats, so the cleats give you about two inches. So really, some guys might be, they say six foot, but really they're 5'8", because they measure you in your bare feet. So these scouts want to figure out how how tall are you actually, so that, we, that way if we draft you, we have to have people in front of you that can protect you. Um, you know, where can we put you on the field so you won't get your head knocked off? You know, and that kind of thing. So when you come at like a story like this about the draft, or, or mm-hmm. I I really loved you wrote a piece for the Morning News, which I still read because I'm a Dallas kid at heart forever. Um, you, you wrote a piece about the the hiring of black coaches and GMs mm-hmm. that I thought was really interesting. And I guess what I took from it was it seems like you're looking for the human angle on these stories. Mm-hmm. Would you think that's right? Mm-hmm. Like this upcoming draft? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the things I learned growing up in a business is that you write about people. Um, you know, the games are important, but the games are uh, played by people. So in that story – 
you know, I, I was trying to think of something different. So I looked at, the, you know, the Cowboys and their hiring practices for people of color. And then I looked at the National Football League. And when we're talking about hiring, we're talking about head coach, play caller for offense and defense. Because what we've been seeing is people of color will get hired as coaches, but only as position coaches, meaning you'd be the running backs coach or the defensive line coach and not the offensive coordinator who runs the offense and not the defensive coordinator who calls the signals. So you're just in these position uh, type roles and you're not getting the, the higher paying, more valuable jobs that, you know, a lot of white coaches have gotten over the years. So that was kind of like the, the genesis of that story. So I kind of try to humanize it as much as I possibly can, but we've always, you always write about people, you know, it's like you make music for people about people sometimes about love. So there's love between people. So it's all kind of, it's all kind of, it's almost in the same stage at times. So probably a big part of your job throughout the years has been interviewing people and that's gotta be weird now, right? You're not sitting down across a table at a Starbucks or whatever. <laughs> no, it's like this uh, in some instances, but I would say the majority of my interviews are over the phone. I might be, I might text somebody. Um, it's amazing what we did before text messaging. Um, you know, you're calling somebody over the phone. I do miss the interaction of being in the locker room, talking to players, talking to coaches, because it's kind of like you get a better feel for them. You know, when in the locker room, you can, you know, when you're on the phone or in a group Zoom um, setting with like 10 other people, it's so formal. You know, you have to be, hey, Rhett, um, Calvin Watkins, Dallas Morning News, bam. <laughs> locker room, I could say, hey, what's up, man? Did you get a haircut? And you would say, yeah. Oh, really? Oh, it doesn't look that good. Really? And you know, and boom. Then you get into your conversation. You know, it's a little more casual. It's more, it's personal, a little more personal. Um, there's something you could have told me on a Tuesday and then I, then I'll see you on a Friday. And I said, do you ever get that, your wife, that ring that you promised her, you know, and then we can get into these conversations and then we can talk about our business, about the team. So I kind of missed that personal aspect of it. Um, cause a zoom call, I can't say, did you get a haircut? Cause yeah. someone else is waiting to ask a question. You know? God. So I know you, you grew up, uh, around in the Northeast, New York, Pittsburgh, yeah, New York. Yeah. New York. New York. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder when, when you were a kid, did you know, like that you were going to be a sports writer? Did you know that you were going to be a writer? Was there like an epiphany moment? How did you wind up doing this? Uh, I always knew um, I wanted to be a sports writer. Uh, and that sounds crazy, but I, I just, I just felt that that was something that I wanted to do. Uh, my grandfather, he was a history buff. He wrote like seven books on, on many different things about black history. He wrote a book about tobacco, he wrote a children's book, all kinds of things. And I guess I got the writing aspect from him, but I, I, I just felt like I wanted to be a writer. I, I'm only five foot eight. So I felt like I wasn't tall enough to play basketball or big enough to play football. I wasn't very good at baseball. So I just said, and I wanted to be connected to sports um, in some ways. And this was the easiest way for me to be connected. I remember uh, taking a typewriting class in high school. Might've been my ninth grade year, I think. And I remember 
taking a typewriting class, and people were like, why are you taking this? And I was like, because, well, you got to learn how to type, be a sports writer. So even then, I kind of knew I was like preparing myself for this uh, venture. So I'm kind of, there, there's some people that, a lot of people are in jobs or careers, uh, and there's a big difference, as you know. But some people don't really find their careers until the 25, 26, maybe. Sometimes they change careers, you know. But I kind of knew it in high school, you know, at 16 or 15. And, and now what am I, 52? So that's like a long time in saying this is what I want to be. And this is basically this is what I be when I want to grow up, you know. And I'm doing it. So to me, it's like a dream job. Um, you know, nothing is any other job. But for me, this is a job I've always wanted to do. It's funny. That's something that I notice a lot about people, especially people who start really young, who know really young. And, and that's more often than not, I find the case with people who are really mm-hmm. driven, artistic or creative people um, is that they start thinking like logistically, like you're in ninth grade thinking about taking a type typing class because you got to learn how to use a typewriter to be a sports writer but it's great it's not like you're you know doing a fake interview with kareem abdul jabbar in your class you know i don't know maybe you were also but you're like you're thinking about like okay i'm gonna have to type i love Mm -hmm. that i love do and do you i mean you're probably typing all the time do you carry around a notebook i do yeah Uh, not everywhere i go but there's one thing i always keep with me i always have a pen like, I might go to dinner with my wife and I got a pen with me. I don't know why. I just, I'm so used to having something, you know, to write down. I might not have a notebook with me, but I always have a pen just in case. That's just a habit. Like your phone might die, but the pen. The pen is, an op- is, a, is a, <laughs> a good option. <laughs> so, and I know that the, the profession that you chose is one where people wind up moving around a lot. And, and I know mm-hmm. you've done a a little bit of that between cities and between publications. And, um, and I just wonder like, uh, because I know musicians, uh, there's a lot of self doubt that works its way in. Mm. There's a lot of internally generated obstacles. There's even mm. like, I've spoken to musicians who are really successful and they wind up sort of grappling sometimes with um, like imposter syndrome or even uh, six, like um, what is it? Success guilt. You know, it's all all these kind of things that you you come up against. I wonder, like, in your profession, have you had to deal with a lot of internally generated obstacles? And what have you done to get around them? Yeah, uh, some of it was self-inflicted. Like, um, you know, when you're young and you think you know everything, um, that that could be a detriment. And it was for me early in my career. Because I just thought I knew everything. and if I didn't get my way, I would just, I'm, I'm leaving, you know, I, you know, I would leave the job or whatever. Uh, a lot of it was immaturity. A lot of it was, you're, you're fearful. You're, if you're afraid to fail, you know, and it's okay to fail. They're not going to fire you for failing. You just got to get back up the next day and, and, and write better or do whatever. So, but I was afraid to fail. I didn't understand the business. Um, I didn't understand how to cover sports. There's a certain way you have to you have to cover sports. A certain way you have to go about your business, professionalism. So I had to learn that. Um, it took me a while to kind of grasp that. Um, I, I think one of the, I had a physical ailment 
um, I, I was an agate clerk, which is like uh, the lowest level you can get in on a staff in Atlanta. And uh, they sent me on assignments. And every time I was right, I was I had, I had to write on deadline. My hands would hurt. Like I just couldn't, you know, I would just I would have to go to the restroom to calm my nerves and go back and write. And I had to figure out, you know, this is just a psychological thing. It was like I didn't have arthritis and, you know, nothing. It was just psychologically I was I was afraid to write. I was, you know, I was like, hey, you're here now. You know, man, you know, like you're here. Someone trusts you to write these stories and you're here. So go do them. You know, you're, you've made it. And I was, I was, I was preventing myself from doing it. You know, uh, maybe I, in some cases when I talk about maturity, maybe I was sabotaging myself from actually writing and doing those kinds of things. Cause maybe I felt like, well, I don't really deserve this. But really I did. It was just, I had to get through, you know, you work so hard to get here to whatever you're doing. And now you're here and you're like, well, I, I'm not, I can't do it. Wait a minute, you've, you've busted your tail all this time. So let's go. It's like you, you go on the stage and you go, no, I can't do it. Wait a minute, you got all these albums and you know who you are. Well, get on the stage, you know, and you, I can't do it, you know. And so I had to like, it was a mental block for me to try to get through that. And eventually I did, but that was, um, and that's why I bounced around. I got my my first full time job was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, covering high school sports, and I, I lasted maybe nine months there, you know. And and then I moved to Pittsburgh, and I worked for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review for about two years, and and there I kind of matured a little bit in terms of understanding things a lot better about about the business, and then I got a and, and that job was really like a part-time gig, you know. Um, and then, and my, then my next full-time job was here in Dallas. I worked for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And I moved here in 1999. And and I was learning how to be a sports writer because I really, I mean, you're, I'm in Texas. You know, I'm, and I'm from New York. So it's one thing to get a job in Indiana. You can drive from Indiana to New York. You know, you drive from Pittsburgh to New York. You can't drive from New York to Texas. You know, you could, but it's going to be a long time. And so once I got here, my maturity really grew. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I got as at the Star Telegram for six months. And then the Dallas Morning News contacted me for a job six months into that. And I ended up getting a raise. So and then I grew with the Morning News and understood the business more, became a better writer a better reporter, a better person in terms of in the business, just understanding it more and more. So it was hard for me at first as a, as a young reporter to just to get it. And I, I might've gotten it a little bit later than, than some, but, um, and I, and I was disappointed at the morning news. Like I got passed over for a promotion one time. I wanted to cover SMU. And um, another writer said, you don't want to cover SMU. I said, really? Cause you don't want that. But he was telling me in a, in, a, in a polite way I wasn't ready to cover SMU, you know, even though at that time I didn't realize it because I thought I was great, but I really wasn't great. I was still a scrub, and, but I had to mature. And then eventually I got the SMU beat and then they put me on the Cowboys and we, I've been ever since. So I was like, oh, OK, it just took me a while to get it. It took me a while to mature as a writer and a reporter. And I'm, I'm, I'm covering one of the top beats in the country. So it's funny. So hearing you describe those early sort of fears and shaking hands and all that, 
it seems like the way through for you was was just perseverance, was just not quitting. Is that I think that summarizes? Yeah, that? yeah. And plus, I didn't know what else to do. Like, this is the only job. <laughs> I could, I, you know, I didn't want to. Uh, I've had other jobs. You know, like I like I sold cars in college. It was terrible. Uh, sold two cars. You know, I sold vacuum cleaners before I worked in fast food restaurants. I've had those types of jobs, but. They didn't, you know, it was just, it was just a job. It was just, I needed some money. And, but this is my career. So yeah, I still wanted, I wanted this career and I just didn't know how to get it. You know, I mean, I, I knew how to get it, but I, I just couldn't, um, uh, someone's giving you the path. This is go down this path to get the job and you're afraid to go down the path. You know, the goal is here, just go get it. But I'm scared to go get it. So I had to overcome my own fears, my own insecurities to go get this job. And once I did that, then it was fine. And I love that. I, um, it's funny. I think about like the elimination of other options, right? Like when Mm -hmm. you get rid of all the other options and you eliminate failure, I mean, and then all that's left is just to keep, like you say, going down the path. Mm -hmm. I I think that was my experience too, for sure. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know your story. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting because when we write something or, or we put a song out there, we're being judged, you know, because you. I think I made a joke with you one time. You put a song out there, so I'll, I'll, I'll listen to that. I don't like that one. Let me see what the next one is. I like that one. But that first song on your album, you might have put 14 hours into that song. And the second song, the one I like, you might have put 45 minutes into it, but that's the song I like. You know, now for you, it's no big deal because, hey, this like something, but you want everyone to like every song, I guess, I assume, you know. Um, so it's that acceptance that you want. But after a while, as you get older, you, get, you don't care. You just you do your business, you know. Yeah, like we know we're good. And one thing that's nice for me oh, and you is yeah. we both get to make a lot of songs and stories, right? Just keep putting them out and putting them out. Yeah, that's the great thing about it. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, that's the key is once you establish yourself, then, yeah, you do need the acceptance of people in a sense. You do. I mean, we, we all have, we all, and it's not even an ego thing. It's just that's what the business we're in. But you establish to know that I think this is a good song. You know, I'm sure you know, oh, this is a hit. Oh, people are going to like this because I like it. My wife likes it. And you're, and you're okay with that. You're comfortable within yourself knowing that, I put out good work. God, there's a quote I always think about where it's attributed to Elvis Costello, but who knows if it was really him. A writer, a writer said, uh, man, all your songs sound like, um, no, he said, he said, so many of your songs are just overlooked by society and and you don't have the kind of hits that, that so many of your peers have. Why do you think that is? And he said, I don't know. They all sound like hits to me. And that's like, that's how I feel. (laughs) Everything I do is pretty great, so it's probably wow, someone actually said that to Elvis Costello. Really? Yeah, um, I think it was early before he started having the the '80s hits. Mm, okay. So you, you've got you've got teenagers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I got a seventeen, sixteen year Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm in, I'm close to that. So this question kind of becomes um, one that's less hypothetical in in our situation. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if you were to meet up with like a 21 year old version of Calvin Watkins. But working in today's world rather than when you were 21, um, is there any advice that you might give that young man? 
Yeah, I would say to him, keep your mouth shut and and, and do the job and, and, and just watch and learn. I would say as a younger man, I I um I didn't do a lot of listening. I did a lot of talking and thinking I knew what I was doing and really I didn't know anything. So I would say to a 21-year-old Calvin Watkins, shh, just stop talking. <laughs> God, that is fantastic. So, <laughs> so to the top 50-year-old Calvin Watkins, shh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is so great. I'm really glad I got to pick your brain. Thanks for sitting down with me. Oh, no. Thanks for thinking of me. Um, it is interesting how when you're a sports writer, you don't think that you are this artist in a sense. When I look at you, I look at you as an artist because you're making something from scratch, like the beats and, the, and your writing. And to me, that's artistry. But I guess as a writer, yes, we are artists as well. But I, I really – like I couldn't even – like, I don't know how to read music or write a song. Yeah, I don't know how to read music. Like a foreign but, language. But I, but I really do feel like mm-hmm. when you're creating a story, I mean, you're using found objects, but you're mm-hmm. creating a narrative that's mm-hmm. as, as moving as anything you'll find mm-hmm. in fiction or in songs. I mean, you're very much a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, we are storytellers. We are. Um, I guess. I guess I look at you as... Music as enjoyment, you know. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, okay, listen to music because I'm at, at Starbucks, relaxing, drinking some coffee. So, but for you, that's like hard work because you've put so much into it. But to me, it's like, oh, this is great. You know, I don't know how he did it, but this is great. You know, so it, to the creativity you have is, you know, I, I guess you could say we're in the same stadium creativity wise, but we're doing different things to. To make something for people. And you, you know what I do for enjoyment? I slide over mm-hmm. to the sports page. So. <laughs> it's very good. It's a good one. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being a part of Wheels Off. Thank you. I appreciate this. I, I like Wheels Off. <laughs> I know. I stole it from the ticket, obviously. My oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. All right, Calvin, take care. You too. Take care. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.